Welcome to this God-inspired message from Shofar Christian Church. Enjoy today's message. May you experience the presence of our Father and may you grow deeper in your relationship with Him. This morning I want us to read a, a passage of Scripture, just one chapter. We're not going to hop around too much in Scripture this morning, apparently I shouldn't be hopping around too much in general, but even in Scripture. So I'm going to ask us, if you have your Bibles, then it's always best to kind of, you can read in, in your own text, otherwise it'll be up on the screens, and you can turn to Hebrews chapter 12, and we're going to be reading a passage there. Many of us know, many of us perhaps know the build-up to this passage, which is Hebrews 11, and Hebrews is one of those interesting books in Scripture's because it's one of the very few books that we actually don't know who wrote it. There are few people we know who definitely didn't write it, who wrote some of the other books in Scripture, that it can't be them who wrote Hebrews for a number of reasons, but we don't know who it is. There's some variety of different theories, but most books the author self-identifies, so that makes it really easy. Um, the other books, the context and the type of language that used is very easy for us to figure out that this is exactly the same style as this book, so kind of it's the same author, most likely. Hebrews, there's none of that. We don't know who wrote Hebrews. What we do know about the book of Hebrews is that it was written to Hebrews. It was written to Jewish people, and that's really important when you're reading the book of Hebrews because it's written to people who have a fundamental understanding of the Old Testament. They know the stories of the Old Testament. They know the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They're acquainted with that history. That it's not like the book of Ephesians, which is written to people who explicitly don't have that. And so when Paul writes the church in Ephesians, he uses different examples and different ways to explain. But here in the book of Hebrews, the author leans on their understanding of the Old Testament. And so through the book of Hebrews, he's speaking about faith and how Abram is the father of our faith. And specifically in Hebrews 11, it's like the hall of fame of faith. Hebrews 11 is all about these great people who have gone, gone before us and who followed God, who were examples to us. And it tells of Abraham and Noah. And it just like in one line just drops something of what they did because the person reading that knows the story of Abraham and knows the story of Moses and knows the story of Noah. The author to the Hebrews doesn't have to explain it because they went to all of them went to really good Sunday schools and kind of they can probably verbatim say most of the book of Moses, the first five books of the Bible, first four books of the Bible. They can probably verbatim quote at this stage. So they're not unfamiliar with the stories and with the accounts. They're not foreign stories with them. And then it tells these really great things of what they did. And then Hebrews 11 goes to this place that makes me incredibly uncomfortable because it speaks of these heroes of faith and what they accomplished and achieved through their faith. And then it says how through their faith they shut the mouth of lions and how women received the dead back to life. People were resurrected because of faith. And that's still cool stuff. And then it says this one phrase in Scripture which makes me very, very nervous because it says, and because of their faith, they were sold. Maybe it is. And I'm like, whoa, that's not the type of faith that I want. But maybe it is. 
Sometimes we think that if you're sawn in two, it's because of your lack of faith. And Scripture says explicitly those people, they were sawn in two because of their faith. And that's kind of challenging. And so it speaks about kind of these histories, all of these people who accomplished these great things for God. That's Hebrews 11 and Hebrews 10. And then 11, Hebrews 10 starts kind of like, it is without faith, it is impossible to please God. Anyone who comes to God must believe that He is and that He is a rewarder of those who diligently seek Him. And that's sort of the whole build up to where we find ourselves in Hebrews 12, where we start off in verse 1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a huge crowd of witnesses to the life of faith, this huge crowd of witnesses is all of this Old Testament stories that he's just recounted there. And then he says this, let us strip off every weight that slows us down, especially the sin that so easily trips us up. I'm reading from the New Living Translation. And let us run with endurance the race God has set before us. Let's just pause there for a moment. A couple of things just sort of in this build up here that I, I want us to just take note of and think of this morning as we read what the author here is trying to say to us and what I sense God is specifically wanting to highlight for us this morning. But just a, a couple of foundations first by way of reminder and he puts it out there for us that following Jesus is a life of faith. And I, I say that and we all hear that, but I want to just put it out there by reminder, following Jesus is a life of faith. What does that mean? Following Jesus is not necessarily in a human context, a life of human rationality and understanding. We don't follow Jesus when we understand we follow Jesus out of obedience. We follow Jesus to places that don't make sense to us, to circumstances that are uncomfortable. We follow Jesus by faith. I, I wonder, and I'm challenged by this, when is the last time you did something which completely relied on faith? What do I mean by that? Where it was God or bust? When is the last time you went up a big, against a big giant with a sword and a spear and you've got your little slingshot as a teenager? And if God doesn't pitch up here, I am dead. When is the last time you had a bunch of people, you're going to go to war, and God says, put down, you don't have swords, so I didn't even worry about putting down the swords because you don't have swords. But what you do have is you've got a couple of candles and clay pots. And there's a big army of a couple of thousand people with bows and arrows and spears and shields and swords. And don't worry, you and your clay pots and your candles, that's going to work. That's a life of faith. When is the last time you were like, okay, God, there's this huge, big city that we need to overcome in a military conquest. And God is, I've got this great, you know how to how you go in, you, you build a big horse and you put people inside the horse and you push it. No, no, no. We don't do that as Christians. We just walk in silence around the walls for six days. And then the seventh day, we go totally out there. We walk around it six times in dead silence. And the seventh time, we shout. And we shout, the walls come smashing down. It doesn't make sense. Walked up to someone who's crippled and lame, unable to walk, and you're like, rise up and walk. Sovereign gold, I don't have it. What I've got, I give to you. 
I love the story of Paul who at one stage he's on this island and he's making fire. And as he's making fire, a snake bites him. And all the local people are like, yeah. So he, he gets on the, for those not familiar with the story, he gets on the island as a prisoner. And they were on the ship and Paul said we mustn't sail. Not a good idea to sail. They sailed anyway. The ship sank. They swam to shore. And the locals, when the snake bites him, you see, they say, yeah, see, he was a prisoner and now calm has got him. Fate's got him. He can't run away from the fact that he's done some bad stuff in his past. And this snake, they know this type of snake that bit him. And Paul just shakes it off and the snake falls in the fire and they're expecting him to die. And they look at him and he doesn't die. And the next day he's still alive and they begin to worship him as a god. Because he just shook off the snake. When is the last time? Hopefully not soon. Don't go and test this, please. But when you're in a situation and you're meant to be dying and there's just faith that rises. That's the Christian walk. The Christian walk is not a walk that makes sense to the world. It's not a walk of reason. I love the leadership books. I love some of the, if we can call them, Christian self-improvement books. I think there's much truth to that. But one of the dangers sometimes is we can fall into thinking, I must just sort myself out and fix myself out and make myself right. And we leave faith out of the equation. There's another scary verse in Scripture. It says, anything that is not of faith is sin. Whatever is not of faith in the eyes of God is sin. When is the last time that you stepped out in faith? Next thing about this verse is, there is a race to be run. Paul says, let us run the race. I don't think he is saying by that, just carry on casually and live your life. I think he's speaking about purpose here. He says there's a reason for us to be here. There is a race to be run. There's a race that requires endurance. And so I'm at this weird place in my life right now because of my, my foot that I'm probably, I was saying to my wife, I think I'm the unfittest right now that I've ever been in my life. And I'm not, I'm being genuine, I don't think I've ever been this unfit in my life. I might just pass out when I'm done preaching. We'll see. Um, and so kind of I need to get myself, I need to work at this endurance thing. Endurance doesn't just come by itself. And so I've got this crazy idea. A church in Poch of Sturm, they're organizing a marathon. And like a proper comrades accredited training, what's it, comrade qualifying marathon. And they've got, fortunately, they've got the marathon and they've got the half marathon and they've got the 10K, and they've got the 5K. So I was at my physio, I was like, I, I think I want to go and do one of these, and she's like, maybe the 5K. So I was like, okay. But even the 5K, maybe you're sitting where I'm sitting, and as you look sort of at this purpose in front of you, like 5K is intimidating to me right now, to be honest. I can't even walk properly, and I want to kind of enroll for a, that's intimidating. And some of us, as we look toward the road that God is holding before us of endurance, it's like, this is intimidating. I don't even know if I can do 1K, never mind 5K. Literally where I am now, just practically, I, I can't even run 10 meters, just the running action doesn't work. So I'm going to have to figure that out, and that's part of by the way, if anybody can help me think of a way to use this in some crazy way, perhaps to do a fundraiser for a good cause, let me know. Philip doing 5Ks with a busy rehabilitating leg. 
But anyway, that's just as an aside. But there's a race that needs to be run, and it requires endurance. God isn't just calling us to say, just sit on your couch and be lazy for the rest of your life, and I'm going to smile upon you. No, actually, I'm going to send you pizzas and a bigger screen and make sure there's always good content. I don't think that's what God's called us to. I don't think any of us are here on, our, on this earth. I don't think when Paul says, run the race with endurance, he's talking about the race on your couch. Some of us, we're good at that. We played the rugby game with endurance last night. I don't know if anybody else that I didn't endure very long. I fell asleep at halftime. Evil me. But some of us are good at that. We are good at running the race from a distance. We, we're good at being in the crowds and watching other people run the race. And I said, Paul, just now mistakenly, it's not Paul. Whoever wrote Hebrews here, he's the author here, is encouraging us. He's saying, run the race. Get in the race. Be part of the race. You can't be a part of the great cloud of witnesses until you've run the race. And then he mentions two things that slow us down and trip us up, he says, in this translation. He says, strip off every weight that slows us down, especially the sin that so easily trips us up. Can I just, it's important because I, I think many of us, when you read passages like this, we only look at sin. And the author here is saying there's a whole bunch of stuff that slows us down, and not all of it is sin. He says, especially the sin, make sure you get rid of that, but there's other stuff that weighs you down. There's stuff that holds us back. A couple of weeks ago, we spoke about the cares of this world, and that would be one thing that weighs us down, that slows us down, that keeps us from being able to step into that where God is calling us. I remember many years ago, just when I started in student ministry, I went to some conferences of people who do student ministry stuff, and in the U.S., and one of them, John Piper, was speaking to a bunch of university students. And he, he did a session on missions and masturbation. And what he said was masturbation and, and sexual sin amongst young people, to his mind, was the large and just cause of keeping the children of God out of the mission of God. Because of the guilt and the shame that's associated with sexual sin. See, there's stuff that comes into our lives with a singular purpose, and that's to weigh us down, to keep us away from where God wants us to be. And then we're faced with, okay, but what do I do with the stuff that I have in my life now? How do I cast it? He says I must cast it off. He says I must get rid of it. But there's this stuff in my life that's weighing me down. There's this purpose to which God is calling me. There's this thing I need to step into. There's this faith I must have. But every time, just as I'm about to enter into faith, the guilt and the shame, and my faith gets quenched. I'm just about to step up out of the boat. I'm about to walk on the water. I've got everything ready. I'm about to go. And then I get tripped up again. And here is where it's so important that, we'll, that we get this bit right. Because part of modern church wants to tell us all of these things that we must now do. And we go read the books and the five-point improvement plans and become the better me every second book in 
Kum books or whatever is about being a better me or a better version of me, can I just quickly put this out there? I have no desire to be a better version of me whatsoever. Because even the best version of me is pretty useless. I have every desire to just reflect Christ. And we should have our intention not to be a better me, but to reflect Jesus better. And the author here helps us a lot to, to the Hebrews. He tells us exactly what we need to do to cast off the weight and the sin that slows us down. It's so simple. It's almost too simple. And that's part of the life of faith is that sometimes it's too simple. We hear this often. We, you maybe hear this from kind of a friend or a father or a colleague or, or somebody. And they say, it, it's not that simple. Sometimes following Jesus is that simple. Sometimes the world wants to overcomplicate things. It wants to make it hard for us and wants to give us 14 reasons and 14 things we need to do. The author here just simply says, we do this by keeping our eyes on Jesus. We do this by keeping our eyes on Jesus. I'm not saying accountability and good habits and all of those things are bad. What I am saying is we can be doing all of that stuff and not keeping our eyes on Jesus, and all of that's going to be wasted. We can try again and again and again and fast more. and all of these. If we, if we don't find a way to just look to Jesus. And so this morning, I, I very simply just want to encourage us just to lift our eyes up to Jesus. The psalmist writes in Psalm 121, I think it is, where he says, I lift my eyes up to the mountains. He's finding himself in a spot of bother. And he kind of, it's a military situation again. He needs help. He's like, what am I going to do? And he, he lifts his eyes up to the mountains. He's looking for the hills. He's saying, are there some chariots coming? Is there an army? Kind of that trail of dust as they chariots or the army is marching or they're coming there's hope on the horizon and he's looking all over and he's like i left my eyes up to the mountains and he's like there's nothing where is my help going to come from and then he says my help comes from the lord the maker of heaven and earth there's nothing wrong with hoping and looking at the mountains but my real help is coming from jesus the author says to us here, he says, how do we cast off the sin and the weight? How do we deal with the sin in our lives? We look to Jesus. Do you remember what John the Baptist said when Jesus stepped into the room? Behold, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Behold, the Lamb of God. Right from the outset, the message has always been just look to Jesus. We do this by keeping our eyes on Jesus. The champion who initiates and perfects our faith. A champion, we often think of the champion. The champion is the guy who wins the race. And I guess that is the right wording of the word champion. The way it's used here is the way kind of David and Goliath would have understood a champion. You see, Goliath was the champion of the Philistines, and David was the champion in that context of the Israelites. What is the champion? The champion is the one who we set out to represent us and to fight on our behalf. And if he wins, we all win. If he loses, we all lose. That's a champion. So Jesus is our champion. 
He isn't the one who won the race, who won the fight. He is the one who we choose to put up front to say, He is the one who will fight for us. That's what makes Him the champion. And so Jesus is the champion who initiates our faith. You want to grow your faith? I want to grow my faith. Part of that, what I need to realize is as much as I want to grow my faith, I cannot grow my faith. It's Jesus who grows my faith. Some of the more word-for-word translations here would use something along the lines, the author of our faith, the writer of our faith. He is the initiator. He is the one who starts faith. If there is faith in your heart, it's because Jesus has started faith in your heart. And the perfecter of your faith. The finisher of your faith. The completer of your faith. If your faith is going to grow, if your faith is going to be perfected, if your faith is going to fulfill everything that it's meant to within you, it's going to be because Jesus makes it happen. So what is there for us to do in this equation? Look to Jesus. We do this by keeping our eyes on Jesus, the champion who initiates and perfects our faith because of the joy awaiting Him. He endured the cross. He went through all of this pain, all of the suffering, all of the shame. He disregarded its shame. Now He is seated in the place of honor beside God's throne. Think of all the hostility He endured from sinful people. Then you won't become weary and give up. After all, you have not yet given your lives in your struggle against sin. And so he says, what gives us the endurance to carry on? On that time, in that moment when I'm weak, when I don't know what to do more, how do I find strength? How do I carry on? I look to Jesus. And I just see, well, he went through this, so so can I. He gave his life for this. I haven't even yet given my life. I haven't resisted to bloodshed. Some of the other translations would say it. He has. And so when we're running this faith, this race, maybe like me, just a little 5K, just getting going. Maybe I'm new to this running thing. I've been on my couch the whole life. I've been on my couch for three months. I need to get running again. And after a kilometer, I'm tired and my phone's telling me my heart's about to explode. And I, I can't carry on. I, I don't know where to go. Where am I going to find more endurance? Scripture says, just think of Jesus. Draw strength from what He went through. And the implication we'll look to at a moment is, draw strength from what He went through because you don't have to. That which He's gone through, you don't have to go through. So we see here, this, we are surrounded by this great cloud of witnesses. All of these people are, are looking down at us, at you. They're looking down at me and they're busy cheering and they're saying, Come on, Philip, you can do this. You can finish this race. You can make it work. You can get to the end. You can accomplish it. Come on, you can do it. You can win this thing. You've got what it takes. They're up there. They are cheering. They are celebrating. We'll see this now in a moment. They're looking down over us. They're cheering you on. They're saying you can do this. And then in the midst, 
They're reminding us here, just keep your eyes on Jesus. Look at Philip. Wow, he's going to get so far. And Noah is sitting up there and Moses is next to him. And they kind of happen, I happen to catch their eye. And they say, look at Philip. Look. Well, Moses is like, whoa, that's some pretty heavy weight he's carrying there. And Noah's like, oh, maybe just cast it off. Just throw it off. And Moses is like, Philip, you don't have to have that stuff on you. There's an easier way to do this. There's a lighter way. And they're like shouting, just look up. Look at Jesus. As we find ways to look at Jesus. It falls off. The guilt, the shame, behold, look at the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Some of us need to, in our day, in our lives, we need to find ways to look at Jesus. There are a whole bunch of different ways we look at Jesus. We look at Jesus by just being in the Word. We look at Jesus by being in His presence. Tomorrow specifically, we're going to take the day as we pray and fast to pray about the presence of God in our midst. We look at Jesus in worship. We had a worship night a couple of weeks ago, we were last weekend or whatever it is. We've got a worship night coming this coming Saturday. That's something that we should be saying, God, if in I'm going to be at every worship night I possibly can because it's always a time to look at Jesus. And if there isn't a worship night happening somewhere, then I'm going to put some worship music on at my home and I'm going to worship. I'm going to find ways to look at Jesus. Because it's in looking at Jesus that faith gets written on my heart. It's looking at Jesus that the shame and the guilt gets taken away. I can't take away my shame and my guilt. I can't cut the chains off. But Jesus can then there's a, a whole section where he speaks about, the, the, the writer here of this book, he speaks about God's discipline and how we should embrace discipline because if you're really loved by your parent, they'll discipline you. If they don't love you, they'll dis- don't discipline you, etc. A whole section about that. And then we come to verse 18. I love this bit. And he says, You have not come to a physical mountain, to a place of flaming fire, darkness, gloom, and whirlwind, as the Israelites did at Mount Sinai. So just quick pause here again. He's writing to people who completely know the story. Some of us might not know the story, so let me just fill us in really quick. The people of Israel had been in slavery for 400 years, and they come out of Egypt where they were slaves, and they're in the promised land, and they come to Mount Sinai. The very instruction from the start was Moses I want to let my people go. And Moses goes and says to Pharaoh, let my people go. Let my people go. And we kind of stop there. But it's let my people go, God says, so that they can worship. And so they come to Mount Sinai. And the presence of God is at Mount Sinai. And they're there to worship. But it's this trembling, scary environment. God says, nobody is allowed touching this mountain. If you touch this mountain, you will die. You must stay away from this mountain. Actually, Moses, you can come up and you can bring Joshua with you. And you guys can scale up to, into my presence. There I'm going to speak to you. But nobody else must come close to this mountain. This mountain is terrifying. You and the kind of the picture here, the story here is this mountain represents my presence, my holy place, which is perfect and holy. And you are all sinful. You are dirty. And if you step into that, you will die. My glory will consume the inglorious in your midst. And so he says, that is not what you have come to. You have not come 
to Mount Zion. Or you have not come, sorry, to a physical mountain, to a place of flaming fire, darkness, gloom, and whirlwind, as the Israelites did. That is not what the new covenant is about. That is not what following Jesus is about. It's not about fire and brimstone. It's not about terror and trembling. They heard an awesome trumpet blast and a voice so terrible that they begged God to stop speaking. Imagine this. God is speaking to them so much that they're like, God, please keep quiet. We cannot. It's too, too much for us. Your voice is too intimidating. It's too scary, God. Lord, if you keep on speaking, we're going to die. They begged God to stop speaking. They staggered back under God's command. If even an animal touches the mountain, it must be stoned to death. Moses himself was so frightened at the sight that he said, I am terrified and trembling. And you see in the Old Testament, that is this picture of God we get. And under the Old Covenant, because of God's holiness and because of our sinfulness, that's what it was. But this letter is being written being people who fully understand that. This letter is being read, written to Israelites who've grown up living afraid of the mountain, if I can use that term. And so he says, but with Jesus, it's different. Because he carries on in verse 22. He says, no, you haven't gone to that physical mountain, but you have come to Mount Zion, the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to countless thousands of angels in a joyful gathering. You see the contrast here already? The contrast of terror and trembling and joyful gathering. You see, when we come to Jesus, we come to a joyful gathering. We come to angels, countless thousands of angels. I love in one example in Scripture and that speaks about Angels, 10,000 times 10,000. Last time when I did maths, that was 100 million angels worshiping before God's throne with loud voices singing. Some of us kind of are going to have to make peace with the fact that heaven probably isn't this incredibly quiet place, not with hundreds of millions of angels singing with loud voices. He says, that's what you've come to. As we follow Jesus, as we look to Jesus, we're not looking at fear and trembling and shame and guilt because of my sin. We're looking at angels in a joyful gathering. We have come to the assembly of God's firstborn children whose names are written in heaven, the cloud of witnesses we read about earlier. You have come to God Himself who is the judge over all things. You have come to the spirits of the righteous ones in heaven, who have now been made perfect. You have come to Jesus, the one who mediates the new covenant between God and people. The old covenant was that kind of if we do all of these things, if we keep these promises, if we, if we, if we, if we, then God will. That's the old covenant. That's the Fear and trembling. That's the, we cannot come close to God because He is too holy. 
But here is a mediator of a new covenant. A new covenant which is not if we will, then God will. It's a new covenant of God saying, I have, so you can. God looking at you and saying, I have, so you can. I have overcome the evil one, so you can be free. I have defeated death, so you can be alive. I have paid the penalty for sin, so that you can be righteous. I have, I, I have already done it. I have taken the guilt and the shame and the sin. And so we come to Jesus, and we come to Jesus not with this fearful God. He is holy, but not with this fearful God is so holy, and I'm going to be wiped out in His presence. No, God is so holy, and I'm celebrated in His presence. I'm welcomed in His presence. Before we carry on just to the last bit, I'll just, we had a really great small group in the week. Some of the young guys, the students, and we were talking about just this this. God who feasts, God who calls us to feast and to celebrate. Just putting some experiences and discussions around that. And one guy spoke about the, the prodigal son. And I was just struck again by that, how this son comes back to a God, and this son comes as a slave. This son comes as one who's run away and wasted all his father's stuff, and he is like, you know, maybe I can go back to my dad, and if I get back to my dad, I can at least live as a slave, because the slaves in my, house, my dad's house live better than I live now. And the dad comes back, and the dad's, we're going to eat. We're going to fetch the fatted calf. We're going to have a big party here. We're going to celebrate the return of my son. You see, we have not come to that physical mountain of fear and trembling. We have come to Mount Zion, the city of the living God, where there's a feast, where there is celebration, where there is welcoming. You see, the welcoming isn't because I am so great and so special. That prodigal son doesn't come back to his father and the father says, wow, my son, you have done so well. Because you have kind of, Oh, these businesses you started and the integrity that you displayed when you were away and the wisdom with which you conducted yourself, none of that is true. He's just, you're back because you're my son and I'm celebrating it. And guess what? You messed up everything I've ever put in your hand, but it's okay. You're still welcome here. So we come to this one, to Jesus. You have come to Jesus. The one who mediates the new covenant between God and people. In just a moment, we're going to partake of communion. I'm going to ask the ushers if you guys can hand out the elements for us so long, please. What have we come to? We have come to the sprinkled blood, which speaks of forgiveness. Instead of crying for vengeance, like the blood of Abel. That is such a powerful sentence in our theology. You see, Abel was this one who, one of the first two boys who ever lived. There was Cain, Cain was, I get this now, Adam and Eve. And their first two children, they had many children. Their first two children were Cain and Abel. And these two got in a dispute and Cain killed Abel the first time a crime had been committed, a human crime. First time there was murder. 
And the blood of Abel was crying out for vengeance, crying out for justification. We see this now in every Hollywood movie. You know, someone gets hurt and then there's this family feud because the blood is crying out for vengeance. I need to avenge my brother, my friend, my father, my family member. I need to avenge. That blood is crying out. And that's what the blood of Abel was. It was crying out for vengeance. But the author to the Hebrews here helps us understand the blood of Jesus is different. It's not crying out for vengeance like the blood of Abel. It's not this mountain of terror and fear. It's not this place we cannot approach. It's not like God is so holy and He is over there and we are so unholy so we are over here. It's not an eye for an eye. No, Jesus has come to make it different. And He is this mediator of the new covenant, this new covenant that says He has so we can. It speaks of forgiveness instead of crying out for vengeance. And so as we're going to partake of communion in just a moment, I want us to think of this, that we have blood that speaks of forgiveness. I think most of us, if we're honest, we can fully understand verse 1 of Hebrews here, which says of, Hebrews 12, which says that you must strip off every weight that slows us down, especially the sin that so easily trips us up. I think most of us have something there. There's something we know this thing trips me up. There is this weight that weighs me down. There is this heaviness that causes me not to be able to. I really want to follow Jesus, but I want to obey, but I want to step out in faith, but I want to pursue purpose, but. I want to witness to my friends, but. And in just this moment as we partake of communion. Thanks. That's an empty one. Thanks, Yaku. As we partake of communion, let's remind ourselves of this, that this blood is not blood crying out for vengeance. It's not blood that's crying out that's saying, yes, Philip, you messed up. You must pay the price. Yes, Philip, you're carrying sin and shame. Good on you. You deserve it. No, it's blood crying out, saying forgiveness and freedom. You don't have to walk with shame. You can come. I want to read this verse 22 section again, just hopefully to stir a little bit of faith in us of what is it when we come to Jesus because we don't come to fear and trembling. Some of us have still, we, we grew up in environments where this is the Jesus that was held before us. This, whoa, Jesus is so holy. You, you better not do that. I remember kind of in, when I grew up, some of you may remember, shops weren't open on Sundays. And then they started opening up shops on Sundays and you know, the religious people and the home that we grew up in, ooh, that's so bad. God is going to strike them and judge them. Because God is holy and now you're doing something unholy on Sunday and God is this big evil mountain. And when you, not this big evil, sorry, this big holy righteous mountain. And you're so evil and if you just get a little bit too close, finished. 
such a, a misunderstanding of the gospel. Yes, it's in Scripture. Yes, it is there, but it's missing Jesus. Without Jesus, that would 100% be true. But with Jesus, all of that changed. No, you have come to Mount Zion, to a city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to countless thousands of angels in a joyful gathering. You have come to the assembly of God's firstborn children whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God Himself, who is the judge over all things. You have come to the spirits of righteous ones in heaven, who have now been made perfect. You have come to Jesus, the one who mediates the new covenant between God and people, and to the sprinkled blood, which speaks of forgiveness, instead of crying out for vengeance like the blood of Abel. The rest of the chapter speaks about the importance of obedience. It says, now because Jesus has done all of these things, it's important that we listen to Him. We can't just carry on doing our own thing because of what Jesus has done. It helps us to understand how do we relate well to what Jesus has done. I'm not going to get more into that, but I just want to kind of, just for completeness of the chapter, just mention that, that it doesn't end here. Great, we are with Jesus, and now we do our own thing. No, we are with Jesus. And because of that, we follow Him. Can we stand together? I'd love for us to pray and to partake of communion together. Has everyone received it? We miss anyone. Just put up your hand if you didn't receive any of the communion elements. Can I pray for us? Jesus, thank you this morning for the gospel. Thank you for the cross, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus, that this morning, we did not come to a physical mountain, to a place of flaming fire and darkness and gloom and whirlwind. We haven't come to a place where we have to beg you to stop speaking. But we have come to a city of the living God. We have come to a place where there's joyous celebration, where there's a joyful gathering, a place where we're welcomed and celebrated, a place, Jesus, where sin is washed away and where we can come freely, Jesus. And so this morning, right now, Lord, we want to take all of the weight that so easily, that weighs us down and the sin that so easily ensnares us, everything that slows us down, Lord. Lord, as you call us to run with endurance this race, every weight that slows us down, every sin that trips us up, Lord. Jesus, right now, we just want to cast that at your feet again. Lord, we cast the shame and the guilt that comes with it, Lord. We cast it at your feet. Jesus, we do this really simple thing and we just look to you. We look to you, God. Lord, the sin that trips us up over and every time, just as we think we've got it sorted out, Lord, the sin pops its head out and trips us up again. We're just looking at you, Jesus. We just want to look away from the sin. We even for a moment want to look away from the cause. We want to look away from the brokenness in ourselves. 
We want to look away from even all of the good advice we've received, Jesus. And just look to you. And say, Jesus, you are our only hope. Jesus, it's you or nothing. Jesus, if you don't fix this, if you don't change this, nothing will change, Lord. Jesus, if you don't change my heart, if you don't change my thinking, if you don't change my behavior, if you don't, then no one can. So we just look to you in hope, Jesus. We look to you in expectation, Lord. And Jesus, we look to you in joyfulness because we are welcome. Because we don't have to be afraid of coming to you, Lord. Because you're that mediator. Thank you, Lord. You have already so that we can. Thank you for your body which was broken, Lord. When you died on that cross, you gave your body broken so that by your stripes we are healed, Jesus. Lord, it doesn't make sense to us, Lord. We don't get how the medicine and the science works behind that, Lord. But we walk in faith and we choose to believe it, Lord. We choose to believe that when your body was broken, it it made us whole in our spirits, Lord. It made us whole in our souls. It made us whole in all of our brokenness, Lord, that strength and wholeness is found in your brokenness. And so this morning, we celebrate that. We thank you for that. We receive that, Lord. Let's eat together. And Jesus, in the same way, your blood, which washes, it polishes, Lord, it cleanses, that further than the east is from the west, that's how far you remove your trans- our transgressions from us, Lord. Though our sins were red like scarlet, you washed them white as snow. God, once again, it doesn't make sense, Lord. And so by faith, we choose to believe that your sacrifice was enough. That your blood speaks of forgiveness and doesn't cry out for vengeance, Lord. And because of that, we can celebrate your blood. We don't have to fear your blood, but we can love your blood. So as we drink of this cup, Lord, we receive the gift of your blood in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Shofar Christian Church. We believe that you enjoyed your time with us, establishing God's kingdom and His glory in your life. For more info, call us on 012-362-1363. Email us, pretoria at shofaronline.org. Browse our website, www.shofaronline.org. Or like us on facebook.com forward slash Pretoria.